0: Hi, I'm Mojala Mole, and I am the CMAJ Podcast. I'm not sure exactly where um, Dr. Blair Bigham is right now. He's gallivanting across the globe for a well-needed vacation. So you guys are stuck with just me today. I might just have a little bit of him at the end when we talk about um, our conversation with the two infectious disease doctors about MPOX. So today we're going to be reviewing a paper called Human Monkeypox, Cutaneous Lesions in Eight Patients in Canada. And the paper by Dr. Sharon Sukdeo and Dr. Daryl Tan, their goal with it was to create an atlas of what these cutaneous lesions look like in in the patient population that we would be seeing in North America. And they described um, in the paper the experiences of patients and showing the pictures of what MPOX actually looks like. And then we're going to take a a wider lens and look at what the state of MPOX is right now uh, in terms of this epidemiology uh, in Canada. So let's jump into this. Dr. Sharon Suk-Deo is an infectious disease fellow at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Daryl Tan is an infectious disease physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. We're going to review the paper with them, and then we're going to take advantage of having two infectious disease specialists with us to get a broader update on the status of monkeypox in Canada. Sharon and Daryl, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? Doing, Thanks. doing well. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having us. Let's just start
0: off with why did you want to write this article?
1: Yeah, sure. So at the very beginning, let's say this was back to May of this year, we had our first patient in Ontario with a human monkeypox. And we were hearing a lot of things in the news about what this disease was. And it it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that there were a lot of misconceptions. And we had an opportunity to set it straight, correct it, and we thought that this doing this in the form of an atlas would be a, a great way to show the types of lesions that that are being seen in, in patients with human monkeypox. Um, that was one of the ideas. The other was the fact that in the media, a lot of the pictures that were circulating were of black skin. These were pictures from prior outbreaks or from Africa. And the difficulty with that, especially early in the outbreak, and still pertains now is the fact that that's a very untrue picture of the demographics of the patients that we were seeing. So we thought it was important to depict the types of patients that we were seeing and the lesions that were being seen. The other thing was that we saw a big, I would say, knowledge gap and opportunity to educate physicians on the clinical presentation, the systemic symptoms that come with the, uh, with human monkeypox, and then what the lesions look like, uh, because we were seeing quite a few patients who were being diagnosed uh, or misdiagnosed or bouncing around between uh, one uh, physician or an office to another before receiving their diagnosis, uh, which oftentimes would mean um, uh, delays in their diagnosis or care.
0: So I'm going to get back to that in terms of like visually what it looks like. But you had mentioned that there were some misconceptions in the media back in May when they started seeing that this outbreak was going to be spreading. What were some of those misconceptions?
2: I think a lot of what was being portrayed relates back to this issue of whether the images that were being shown in the media were representative of what was happening in in, in Canada. And really, kudos, I think, go out to some of our amazing community partners on this work and a lot of the other work that we do in the field of sexual health and infectious diseases, notably the Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention. Some of our partners there echoed a sentiment that had actually been voiced by the Foreign Press Association of Africa calling out how problematic it was that, as Sharon said, the images that were being portrayed were largely of young black African children covered in Mpox lesions uh, because that had been what had been seen in other settings Mm -hmm. where this virus has been seen in the past, but was very different from what we were seeing in uh, the adult, gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men in the Western world, and especially in a country like Canada, where we have people from all parts of the world, all skin tones, uh, and a wide diversity of ages. So I think it's largely that was so problematic as a manifestation of structural racism and perpetuating... false notions that echo problematic ideas about certain parts of the world being, you know, hotbeds of infection, which is really problematic and not representative of what was happening with the uh, the epidemiology of Mpox.
0: And Sharon, you had mentioned previously that patients were going from doctor to doctor with misdiagnosis. So can you just kind of walk us through either you or Daryl, what are the distinguishing features of monkeypox compared to something like herpes?
1: Yeah, sure. So the patients who present with monkeypox, they've got cutaneous lesions, they've also got systemic lesions. And at times, these, the cutaneous lesions can look very similar to to those of herpes, for example. Some of the distinguishing features, I would say, is first, the location may not be any different. So you typically in this outbreak, we've seen quite a few of the lesions being located in the genital, in the anal region, in the mouth. That's where they start. Typically for monkeypox, they start as either macules or papules, Pretty quickly, they progress within a, a day or so into pustules. And what's pretty unique, I would say, about the lesions of monkeypox is that these pustules, they develop an indentation or an umbilication in the center. So the center becomes depressed, which doesn't typically happen with, with herpes. And what's distinct about this depression in the monkey in, in monkeypox is the fact that the depression can look quite dark or violicious as well. And, and that happens right before it starts to ulcerate and once it ulcerates there are a few different ways that it can look but you typically get these kind of rolled or pearly edges with a darkened or necrotic almost looking center and then that goes through the stages where after it ulcerates it eventually crusts over uh, forms a scab and eventually that scab falls off.
0: Are there some systemic symptoms that also accompany the cutaneous lesions?
1: Yeah. So in, traditionally for MPOX, so before this outbreak, we were seeing systemic symptoms that preceded any of the cutaneous lesions. And uh, typically that would be in the form of a febrile illness. So you would typically get a fever, um, per- perhaps some chills, you would get malaise or fatigue. Uh, you may get some muscle aches, some back ache. And what's uh, prominent about the, some of these symptoms during this time is that you can develop pretty remarkable lymphadenopathy or swollen lymph nodes. That can be quite tender and painful, and that sets it apart from some of the other differentials as well.
0: So what do you think is the key takeaway from your article for physicians?
1: What I would say is a, a few takeaways. One is that monkeypox can present in a people of all skin tones, and it you should keep a high level of suspicion when considering monkeypox and differential, but also consider the fact that this is an opportunity to think about other differentials other than monkeypox And the fact that uh, people who present with MPOX may be co-infected. They may present with other sexually transmitted infections. And we have had the opportunity to make diagnoses of HIV during this time as well.
0: Let's move beyond the paper. So uh, just looking at monkeypox in general, back in May, it seemed that, you know, it was, this is going to be, it could be the next pandemic. But it seems to have really settled down now. Is that what you guys are seeing in your clinics?
2: Yeah, I do think that is what we're seeing. Fortunately, we definitely have not seen very many true cases for several weeks now, which is really encouraging. And that mirrors what's been reported in the official epi reports for most parts of Canada that are publishing regular reports, and also what's been seen in other parts of the Western world. Notably, there are some exceptions. So there are still kind of raging epidemics going on in some parts of Latin America. Certain pockets of the United States, I understand, still have quite active chains of transmission going on. But we are seeing a decline here in our setting, which is probably the combination of a whole host of different factors. Uh, It's also important to note, though, that I think we have to be very cautious because at the peak of the epidemic during the summer... It was not difficult often to make a diagnosis of this infection once you kind of knew what you were looking Mm -hmm. for. Many people presented with pretty obvious, pretty dramatic symptoms, and people were very eager to seek care because it was so painful, it was so unusual, etc. With the positive changes that we've seen with things like some behavior change, with the rollout of vaccine, it's also possible that the phenotype is going to change a little bit, that people may be presenting or may develop more mild manifestations if they develop the infection at all. And so I think we really have to keep a very high index of suspicion and be vigilant about over-interpreting the epidemiology for that reason.
0: So initially, it appeared that most of MPOCs that we were seeing were affecting gay, bi men and other men who have sex with men. To what extent is this still the case?
2: I can try to tackle that. Um, you know, to the extent that we're seeing cases at all these days, I think it's fair to say that that is still the case, that the vast majority of people with MPOX during the whole global epidemic in 2022 have overwhelmingly been sexual minority men, so gay, bi, and other men sex with men. The proportion of individuals who self-reported as not being a sexual minority man certainly did increase over the course of the epidemic through the summer but we're really talking about an increase from less than 1% to you know less than 10%. So the overwhelming majority still is people who you know who self-identify as such.
0: There was one part of at the beginning that was that I found a bit curious was there was some reluctance to communicate that mpox was spreading in the community of men who have sex with other men and part of that was just out of fear of stigmatizing and reducing it to just oh this is quote-unquote just a disease of gay men similar to its previous stigmatization of the community how do you think the thinking around this has evolved over the months from the outbreak back in may
1: yeah, so I, I yes, I, I think it's important to note that in the beginning, there there was this early recognition that 99%, almost 100% in certain regions of the people affected with MPOX. Uh, were gay, bisexual, and other men who had sex with men or identified as such. And yes, there was the reluctance to say so. I think it was a very good and important move to acknowledge that publicly because these are the people that were being affected. And I think there's significant value in the public messaging and getting that knowledge out there that if you identify as such and you have the right risk factors, you are at risk. And there are steps that you can take to minimize your risk. We have vaccines if you are presenting with lesions, you can go and get diagnosis. So I do think that although there may have been a reluctance to admit this in the beginning, this is actually important identification and the getting the right messaging to the right people and the limited resources we have to the right places.
2: Yeah, I'd echo that. I think it's absolutely, well, I think it's really positive that a lot of mainstream media, a lot of public health officials were hesitant to just go around throwing out there that that this was being seen almost exclusively in this population because of the historical discrimination, of course, that queer people have faced uh, in this country and around the world. And that fear of stigmatization is, is I think, a, a, something that comes from a really good place. And I think it shows that we've learned a lot of important lessons in public health over the years. All that being said, the problem is, of course, that as we learned during the HIV epidemic, for example, you know, there's some really nice activist messages out there that have this beautiful pink triangle on a black background that say silence equals death. And what the spirit of that activist slogan is all about is that if we don't really explicitly talk about what's going on openly, especially when the data are so overwhelmingly clear that there is an overrepresentation in a key community, then we actually risk a lot of things. We risk not getting the key messages out to the communities that could benefit from those messages most. We risk drumming up excessive anxiety in folks who honestly need not be as, as worried about it personally. We also risk diverting resources, in a sense, to the wrong places in a way. If we perpetuate an idea that everyone is equally at risk and that every single person needs to have access to certain resources, we actually fail to, to focus those resources in the equity-seeking groups that the folks who, who really do stand to benefit the most from our energy. So I think there is a bit of a Goldinox phenomenon, a bit of a need to find that perfect sweet spot. And I think for me, one of the key ways in which the thinking has rapidly evolved on this is that... You know the way forward involves acknowledging what's happening epidemiologically, but meaningfully engaging the key affected communities, as is always the case in in trying to address inequities in society and bringing those voices to the fore, allowing those communities to lead and own a lot of the response.
0: You had mentioned before that a number of the cases, number of cases have been declining, Daryl. Do we know what the reason behind the decline is?
2: Let's each take a stab at this, <laughs> Sharon. What do you think?
1: Yeah. So. I think that there are many factors that that play into the decline. I think that it should go without saying that it's not entirely clear for sure what is causing this decline. However, there are a lot of good factors at play here. I think that early public health messaging and advocacy and knowledge about MPOX right from the start played a role. I think that early vaccinations had an effect. If you speak to certain sexual health physicians, they'll they will tell you that within a few weeks of us rolling out vaccines, ninety percent of their patients who wow. uh, would be coming in for their regular checkups uh, would say, Yeah, I've already gotten my vaccine. I'm I'm don't need to worry about me. I'm I've heard it all. I know what to look for and I've got my vaccine and I'm doing all that I can. And I think that kind of targeted approach to an outbreak really helped in decreasing the amount of cases.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that that all being said, I think some of the really interesting and challenging uh, issues ahead are, are that although the vaccine probably did play an important role alongside behavior change and the education efforts that were so pivotal, as Sharon said, I think there's a lot we still don't know about this vaccine, it's worth pointing out that even though this vaccine was approved for use against MPOX by Health Canada, which is this amazing stroke of serendipitous good fortune that it was licensed just before this uh, epidemic hit, that licensure in Canada is actually based on human safety data, but only animal efficacy data. Oh, really? So, We don't actually have, because MPOX hadn't really been around to formally study, of course, in most parts of the world, we don't actually have the key data that would give us the confidence that we really want about the potential impact of vaccines on controlling the epidemic for good. And specifically, some of the challenges ahead are that when we first started rolling out what's called Invimune, that's the trade name for this third generation replication deficient smallpox vaccine we've been using, in Canada... We didn't know how much supply we had. So many people were told, most public health authorities were only permitting a single dose of the officially licensed two-dose vaccine series. And so many people actually went out there, as Sharon said, and got that vaccine, but they really only got one dose. So we don't quite Mm -hmm. know what that implies if they didn't get the second dose. Even those who did get the two doses, and maybe it may or may not have been on schedule, We have certainly already seen reports in many jurisdictions of infection post-vaccination. Sometimes people call that breakthrough infection. It might not be the best term, but infection post-vaccine. So I think vaccine clearly has played a role alongside the behavior change in education. But in terms of what's gonna happen a few more months from now, maybe maybe years from now, I think only time will tell.
0: Wow, a little grim, but that's okay. It's the reality. I guess part of that is, how has the treatment of monkeypox evolved since the outbreak?
1: Yeah, so I would say that for the majority of people who develop mpox, their treatment is very, is conservative, it's symptomatic based. Most people have a, I would say, what I would call a mild disease. And their symptoms, their cutaneous lesions last a few weeks and heal and they heal without any issues. There are other, uh, a minority of persons with MPOX who develop severe cutaneous lesions, or they develop lesions in uh, areas that cause them a lot of pain or a lot of morbidity. So for example, what I mean by that is lesions that develop around the anus or perianal lesions come with a significant amount of pain. And I think this is something that oftentimes we uh, don't fully acknowledge or appreciate, but these people, walk around or sometimes cannot walk because of how much pain there is. And at times, this has necessitated the administration of opiates just to manage the pain. So we're talking about a lot of pain here. And yeah, some people with MPOX have lesions in their mouth. Um, prevents them from being able to eat or swallow. And then they end up in the hospital just for hydration or nutrition in, in other means. Um, and then some people, a very small minority, less than 1%, have complications of mpox that may include myocarditis and encephalitis, or otherwise. And these are the persons with mpox that we would consider for an antiviral called tecoviramat or TPOX for short. And this is um, at best ex- experimental. We don't know if it, it truly does work for mpox. There's some animal data, like we mentioned before, a similar thread here. There's some animal data that shows that this may be effective, but we don't know for sure in humans whether there's any effect. There is also the issue of limited supply of tecoviramat And so we had to be very thoughtful in who we thought would have the most benefit from this medication. And so we reserve tecoviramat for those cases that are most severe. And... Uh, there are ongoing trials at the moment to discern whether or not a plays a role in in their outcome and uh, there's still a lot that we don't know and part of the difficulty is that persons with mpox who recover on their own without any antivirals um, they have their lesions eventually go away and those who receive techoviromat, the same occurs. And so it can become quite hairy or difficult to really tell if tecovirumat is causing any benefit whatsoever. And so these are some of the challenges alongside the fact that cases are going down, which is always a good thing, always a good thing, but may may limit, at least for the time being, our ability to really perform robust studies with high numbers of patients. Great.
0: I guess the lastly is... What do you want, what are the key takeaway for frontline physicians, family physicians?
2: I, I think it's important for f- uh, frontline clinicians to feel comfortable referring to this as a sexually transmitted infection. This is another piece that I think was almost controversial for Inappropriate reasons, I would say, at the beginning, people were trying to be very agnostic about how this virus could be transmitted and saying, oh, maybe it's airborne, maybe it's respiratory droplet, maybe there's fomite transmission. And sure, those are all quite possible, plausible, in some cases documented, based on similarities from similarities to smallpox, as well as actual reported cases of, say, fomite transmission, for example, with MPOX. But clearly, overwhelmingly, this thing was being transmitted through sexual networks. And the reluctance to acknowledge that it's basically a sexually transmitted infection, which I think we heard an awful lot at the beginning, um, even through to the end of the, the summer, was probably, again, based on, uh, honestly, I think folks' discomfort sometimes with talking about sex openly. Uh, we t- we try to advance a very really sex-positive approach when we talk about sexual health. And I think it's we've learned, again, the hard way how important that is and how valuable that can be to developing a robust, community-engaged uh, response to epidemics of sexually transmitted infections in uh, historically marginalized communities. And, what that effectively translates into at the bedside, why a clinician needs to care about that categorization, I think, is that it, it, it allows for some of the things that Sharon was mentioning. It, if we think of this as an STI, it reminds us that when we test for it, we should be testing for other STIs, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, herpes, HIV. Sharon pointed out that we've had new diagnoses of HIV made in the context of this epidemic, We've used it as a a springboard for advancing other HIV prevention options for folks, uh, recommending that people start on HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, for example. And so framing it as an STI and not shying away from that allows us to have the real conversations with patients that are so necessary for them to access high quality care, uh, allows us to think of the full differential diagnosis and ultimately provide, provide the care that people really deserve.
0: Great. Thank you both of you for joining us today, for just talking more about monkeypox and just in general about the epidemiology of it. I've learned quite a lot today and hopefully our audience feels the same way.
1: Thank you, Jola. Appreciate it.
0: Dr. Sharon Sukdeo is an infectious disease fellow at the University of Toronto and Dr. Daryl Tan is an infectious disease physician at St. Michael Hospital in Toronto. Hi, Blair. Welcome home.
3: Hi, Jola. Thanks for letting me back into the studio and for holding down the fort.
0: Blair, um, you were very interested uh, in this topic. So now that you've had a chance to listen to the interview, what are your initial thoughts?
3: Yeah, I was sad not to be able to join the interview with the two infectious disease experts, they were absolutely stellar. And I learned a ton reviewing the, uh, the audio on the flight home. Uh, but I, I just have a couple of thoughts that I'll throw out there. First of all, it it's so hard to, to really get across on a podcast, how useful the photo Atlas is in that CMHA article. Um, seeing all the different lesions um, from all over the body, particularly in the mucocutaneous areas, I found really, really helpful. Um, As an emergency doctor, that'll definitely be something that builds my practice. Um, And so I was really, really interested in just the appearance of these. And I hope that our listeners have a chance to escape audio land and head to the CMAJ paper, because the visuals on that are just so incredibly helpful. And then the other thing that sort of struck me was, they were saying that for the most part, we seem to be kind of settling down the monkeypox pandemic. But it was funny, as I was traveling through, we traveled through four or five different countries uh, in Asia for the last two weeks. And Every time we got off an airplane, there were obviously COVID questions and COVID protocols, but there were also monkeypox posters all over the place. Really, and I realized, yeah, and I realized that, man, this really is sort of like a second. Maybe uh, I don't, I don't know if this is accurate to say it was a global pandemic, but definitely that this was an infection of concern in a lot of places. And I, I was hoping to get a bit of a sense of how the monkeypox outbreak um, across countries sort of compared to COVID or was influenced by what we learned from COVID. Um, But it certainly sounds like things are are improving regardless. And part of that is because the communities most affected were very engaged with public health teams around vaccination, around transmission reduction. Uh, And so it does seem to be a success story. Is that the vibe that you got?
0: A hundred percent. And just to play off what you just said about the community that was most affected, I thought that Dr. Tan made a very definitive point in pointing out that monkeypox, the state that it is now, is a sexual transmitted infection and that it does affect men who have sex with men at a higher proportion. Uh, and I thought that was really important because by if you don't name something, then you're not actually able to engage that community to get things moving to be able to um, help to control the spread of it. So I thought that was really an important point uh, that was made, and I do think the reason why it's no longer an issue and it's not a pandemic is because those communities were engaged uh, and were able to stop it. In New York City,
3: there were all these articles about Gay men lining up for like many many hours, really clamoring to get the vaccine, and I think that's sort of or was it for Taylor I'm,
0: Swift tickets?
3: I'm just oh, maybe it was Taylor Swift tickets. That's where you <laughs> should hold your vaccination <laughs> clinic. But what a nice refreshing contrast, eh, to all the the anti-vaccine sentiment around COVID. And here we had a exactly. group of people who were really motivated to get vaccinated.
0: Uh, 100%. And I I, I obviously don't think we necessarily have pictures of those uh, in Canada. But definitely from speaking to uh, Dr. Tan and Dr. Sukdeo is that the community here really were instrumental. And a lot of the community organizations were instrumental in rolling out the vaccine and helping to curtail um, transmission of it. Nice to have a good success story on a new outbreak. 130,000%.
3: That's it for this episode of the CMAJ podcast. Neither Jola or I have been fired by artificial intelligence yet, and we are very happy to be back together after my little vacation break. Jola, thanks so much for holding down the fort this week. It's wonderful to have you back. Please remember to share and like our audio wherever it is you download your podcasts. It would really go a long way to helping us spread the message.
0: I'm Blair Brigham. I'm Mojola Molly. Until next time, be well.